This weekend, we hosted a leadership conference here for pastors, church planners, all throughout the Texas, Oklahoma region and uh, with the EFCA. And I just want to tell you, I've been told by so many of these pastors and leaders that the people of Fellowship Bible Church are awesome. They are wonderful. One lady told me it's exceptional. For all of you volunteers, we had a whole army of them that put this all on. I want to give you a huge thank you. Thank you so much for being so great. You know, we've got this vision of growing deep and reaching out, and it is happening, and I just couldn't have been prouder just to see you all in action. Uh, With the conference, one of the speakers is a very good friend of mine, uh, Roger Pruphart. I met Dr. Roger Pruphart 13 years ago when we were studying, working on our doctorate under Chuck Swindoll, and we spent a week together. And Roger has had really a rather amazing ministry. He's pastored churches in uh, Texas, Iowa, and he is currently the senior pastor of Wayside Chapel in San Antonio. Uh, Roger has his psychology degree from the University of Texas, and he has both a master's in theology and a doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's got a wonderful wife, Kim, three great kids, and so I would like to just warmly welcome a good friend, a guy who's got a lot of insight. Roger, thanks so much for being with us here at Fellowship. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the late uh, Professor Howard Hendricks calls that part of the service to glorifying the worm. Uh, I told Grant, just tell people I'm your friend, and that will be more than enough. Uh, you have a great pastor. I, I hope you know that. Grant is somebody who is loved and esteemed by many, and uh, he's a wonderful servant. And I want to echo what he said about the conference. All of you who served and you as a church allowing uh, that conference to be here was a great encouragement to other pastors and church planners and others. So thank you so much for the way you served. You represented our Lord and Savior very well, and I want to commend you for doing that. Well, it's always fun for me to be in different churches and to see the body of Christ. I remember one of the first times I had an opportunity to preach uh, in a small African-American church in Dallas. I was still in seminary, and it was out by the Fair Park area. And it was a very small, poor church. They didn't even have air conditioning. And as I'm there as a young pastor uh, in training, preaching, you know that in African-American churches, there's kind of a call and response. I don't know if that's what you do here at Fellowship. But uh, they'll call out, uh, you know, amen and come on and preach it. Well, there was this uh, grandmotherly type of woman sitting on the very front row, and it was hot, and she's rocking and fanning herself. And if I was lingering too long on a point or she didn't like what I was saying, she'd say, help them, Jesus, help them. (laughs) So uh, if I hear help them, Jesus, I'll know it's time to to keep moving. But uh, today I want to start out with something maybe we need help on because uh, I'm going to give you a short little test here. I want to name some names. And if you had to write an essay about these individuals, uh, think about what you would say. So there's uh, Shemua, Shaphat. Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amuel, Sether, Nabi, and Geuel. Some of y'all are looking at me like, I have no idea who those people are. Well, let me add two names to the list, Joshua and Caleb. You see, the first ten names, most of us don't know. They're men who are forgotten because they forgot about God. But the other two are men that we know well. Joshua is in the Old Testament. He has a book named after him. There, he was the 
leader of the nation of Israel as he led them into the promised land as the commander. And uh, the other man, Caleb, is somebody who maybe isn't as well known to us. But I want to remind you this morning about Caleb and his courage. These 12 names together make up the 12 spies who were sent into the nation, sent by the nation of Israel into the promised land. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And we're going to be spending our time there beginning in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It tells us, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may go out and spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. Now if we were to keep reading verses 4 through 16, Uh, Give us the names of the spies we've already mentioned, as well as their fathers and their families. And that would be uh, maybe as edifying as reading the names in the pages of a phone book. So I want to drop down to verses 17 through 27 and pick up with the command that the spies were given. It says, when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev and then go into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak whether they are few or many. And how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first harvest of ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rahab left. Labo Hamath, and when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where um, Achiman, Shishai, and Talmi, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now, the descendants we're going to see in a moment are said to be part of the line of the Nephilim. If you read Genesis chapter six, this was the super race of of giants. It was like the Shaquille O'Neals of the day. So they, you you had this group of giants that were there in the land. And then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. And when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And there they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now I think the reason there's such an emphasis on the fruit of the land here is because what we see in Numbers chapter 11. In verses 4 through 6, leading up to this, the, the people were always complaining about what they had to eat. It says, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again. And they said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we used to eat free in Egypt. Yeah, it was free, wasn't it? If you discount all the slave labor and the suffering and the other things. And they go on and say, we remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic and how our appetite is gone. They say there is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Do you know what that word manna means? A literal translation of manna is 
What is it? And so what happened, you'll recall, God was feeding the, the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Miraculous bread from heaven would show up each morning and they would go out and collect it. And, and the scripture tells us it was, it was great. It was this light, fluffy, sweet bread that would melt in your mouth. And the first time people ate it, they're like, manna, wow, this is good. What is it? And so that's what they called it, manna. And, and, and yet as great as that was and as miraculous as it was, the people had gotten to the point where they, they just took it for granted. In fact, they began to complain about it. Have any of us ever done that? Has God ever blessed you in ways that at first you were amazed and this is, this is wonderful, Lord, and then over time you just kind of, well, what's God done for me lately? Or we just even forget and we begin to grumble and complain. Now to silence their complaining about the food, I think God wants them to see what's waiting for them, which is why he, he says, go into the promised land, bring back the figs, the pomegranates. There were grapes that were so large, it literally took two men carrying one cluster on a pole between them. It's like carrying a deer out of the field. So as you, you picture this fruit, you know that the land is great. You know God says there is something wonderful waiting for you. And if you were these people, you would say, let's go get it. But instead what we see is instead of going in and excitedly going to get the land, they're paralyzed. Because of the rest of the report that we read here in Numbers 13, 28. It says, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalekite is living in the land of the Negev, and the, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living in, by the sea and by the side of the Jordan, and as this fear and murmuring is going on, Caleb steps up in verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. I want you to think back to the instructions we just read at the beginning. When, when they were given the mission to go into the land, did, did God say to them, You guys figure out if you can take the land. Did he ever say that? Now, if you look at verse 2, what God says is, This is the land I'm giving you. I promised it to you. There was no decision to be made whether or not they could take the land. God said, it's yours. You can take it to the bank. I'm going to give you the land. In fact, the promise goes back all the way to Abraham. You recall that Abraham was told that God said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And Abraham believed God so much that when his wife Sarah died, it tells us that he bought a piece of land right there because he said, this is where we want the family cemetery. Because eventually everybody from the nation is going to be here. And so Sarah was buried there. Abraham himself uh, was buried there later when he died, as was Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah. The forefathers and the mothers of the nation are all already there, buried in the land. Israel was told, this is the land I'm giving you. But instead of looking at the faith of their fathers, instead of looking at the promises of God, what happened is fear overtook them. They took their eyes off of God. And they looked at the, the things going on around them. See, at this point, the question wasn't, can we go in there and take the land? The question wasn't, how big are the people in the land? The question they should have been asking is, how big is our God? 
I mean, remember who we're reading about. These are the Israelites who had been in slavery and captivity under Pharaoh. These are the men and women who had actually seen the plagues where God delivered them from the most powerful leader in the known world. These are the people that had been brought out of the land of Egypt. They're the ones that had their backs against the Red Sea as Pharaoh and his army charged out to wipe them out. And God parted the waters of the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land and then they watched God close the Red Sea over and wipe out this this enemy army coming after them. These are the people who every day could look up and see the cloud leading them through the wilderness and the pillar of fire at night. The presence of God was there. These are the men and women who every morning would collect manna and say, God is miraculously feeding us. It's not that the ten spies were wrong about the people in the land. They had their facts right. But they forgot their faith. Joshua and Caleb had the same facts, but they also had faith. You see, they didn't minimize the problems. What they did instead was magnify God. It's like what we see when when David went against Goliath. He said, you're a big guy, you're a giant, but there's a God-sized solution for this giant-sized problem. And it's the same thing here. As they saw what was there, they said, we see God. You remember when Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water? He was walking on water in the midst of the storm until the scripture tells us he took his eyes off of Christ and he looked at the wind and the waves around him. And at that point, Peter began to sink and he screamed and cried out, Lord, save me. And many of us do the same thing. As long as we have our eyes on the Lord, as long as we magnify and see how great and big and mighty our God is, we're okay. But when we take our eyes off of him, and we look around at the things around us, that's when we begin to sing. Grant told you I was a policeman. I, I worked in Dallas. I worked my way through seminary as a cop. And there were many times that I would take a report from people who had been robbed. And as I'm talking to the person, I would say, uh, tell me what happened. And they say, well, this, this person had a big gun. And I'd say, okay, can you describe the gun? Was it a revolver or a semi-automatic? Well, it was a big gun. Okay. How tall was the person? Well, he had a big gun. Well, what was he wearing? Well, it, it was this big gun, you know. All, all they could remember is there was this big gun, right? They thought they were staring down the barrel of a tank. And, and this is what we see here. The people uh, suddenly are staring down the barrel of a gun, and it looked like a cannon to them. And I know this morning some of you here are doing the same thing. You're you're facing struggles at school. There's problems with your finances or your family. There's a health issue. There's something that's happened to you at work. And right now, it looks like you're staring down the barrel of a Hauser cannon. And all you can see is, is the size of the problem in front of you. And what God tells us is, I want you to take your eyes off the wind and the waves, and I want you to put them back on me. And I want you to see that I can help you. The Bible tells us when we come to faith in Christ, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God has not left us to face the things in this world alone. It's not that we minimize our problems. We have to magnify our God and see there's a God-sized solution to whatever giant-sized problem is in your life this morning. And as we look here in verses 32 through 33, it says, So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. 
There we saw the Nephilim. The sons of the Anak are a part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Back in 1990, again, when I was still working as a police officer in Dallas, I was assigned to work the Texas-Oklahoma football game at the State Fair of Texas. Now, you heard Grant uh, tell you I went to that little Christian college south of here called the University of Texas at Austin, right? No, it's not a Christian college. And so, I know, I'm in the middle of Baylor Bear Country, and I love it. But I'm, so you, I'm not going to get any sympathy when I tell you this, but my lieutenant thought it would be great fun to take me as a Longhorn alumni and assign me to protect the Oklahoma Sooners. So my assignment was to be with the football team all day, to go to the pep rallies, to be with them. And I'm, I heard Boomer Sooner so many times, I just I couldn't stand it. So then I'm standing there on the sideline with the football team, and this was back when UT had a football team, unlike today, you know. And it was actually a good game. It was close. It came down to literally the last play of the game, the last seconds. The score was 14 to 13. Texas was ahead. And if you've ever watched a game, you know at that point the kicker uh, knows the whole game is riding on his shoulders. And usually these guys are sweating bullets. They're off in their own little zone. They're kicking into the net. They're focused. And as I'm standing there on the sideline watching the kicker, I'm I thought, you know, if I take my baton and hit him in the knee, is it? No, I didn't. I didn't do that. But I, I'm, I'm thinking the whole game is riding on this guy. Now, unlike most kickers that are sweating bullets, this guy was kicked back. He's relaxing. He was even a little bit cocky. And, and I thought, okay, well, maybe that's how he gets ready for a big kick. Finally, the time comes. They line up. He puts his helmet on. He goes trotting out into the field. He's, you know, giving himself the big number one. The game's in the bag. And he lines up and he kicks. And as he does so, he shanks the ball. And he misses. Amen. I heard that. (laughs) And the game ends and UT wins. Now, being a professional policeman, I didn't celebrate amongst the Sooners, right? In fact, what I was told is we've got to go with the team now to the locker room. And we go to the locker room and they go inside and they post us at the door and And while we're standing there, I hear all this yelling and screaming going on in there. And suddenly the door bursts open. One of the coaches runs out. And he says, you have to help right now. Come. And so my partner and I go running into the locker room. We don't know what's going on. And and we see these six, seven, 300-pound linemen playing ping pong with the kicker. They're like tossing this guy back and forth. You know, you ruined it. You lost the game. And, 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 And the coaches are going, help him. Now, I'm 6'4", and back then I had a little more muscle. I, you know, I was over 2'10", and, and I'm looking at him, and I said, I think he's doing great, you know? <laughs> I felt like a grasshopper, right? I didn't want to go into the midst of these massive men in pads. And that's what we see here. You have these spies, and we may think, well, they're just wimps or this. I want you to remember who we're talking about. Remember, when they were appointed, it said they were the leaders. They were the leaders. If you look at the census that is found in Numbers chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, you see just how elite these guys are. There it says there were 603,550 men of war over the age of 20. So out of over 603,000 soldiers, 12 guys are chosen. Men of valor, leaders. Friends, these are the Navy SEALs. These, these are the elite. 
And they were told to go behind enemy lines. And as they're given this mission, just accepting it shows their courage. Moses said in verse 20, make an effort to get them, to get some of the fruit of the land. He uses the Hebrew word hazak. Hazak literally means show yourself courageous. Moses says, go deep into enemy territory, grab some of the fruit of the land. And I want you to remember, we read it was when the harvest was beginning. You know what happened during the harvest in the the land? It means the fields were full of workers all day. And at night there were guards that were posted to guard the produce that had been harvested. The the enemy knows Israel's right on the border. They would have been at at the highest level of alert waiting for uh, probing missions and attacks to come into the land. So everybody's on high alert. These guys, as they grabbed this cluster of grapes, they, they weren't crawling through the brush. They had to walk out in the open carrying this fruit all through the land. I mean, these guys are mighty men who are risking their lives. And yet it says they thought they were grasshoppers. You see, I'd say all this to remind us that these are courageous men who failed because they forgot God. And whether or not you think of yourself as a person who's courageous, there will be times you will fail because you forget God. There will be times we will feel like grasshoppers because we take our eyes off the Lord and we focus on the challenge before us. And when the people forgot about God and they only looked at the giants, look at what Numbers 14.1 tells us. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. If you don't think that a negative spirit is catching, just look at what happens. Ten guys tell a nation who've seen all these miracles of God and, and they say, God said he'd give us the land, but we can't take it. And suddenly, everybody turns on the leaders that God has appointed over them. Verses 2 through 4 of chapter 14 say, And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land? Is it to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They say it would have been better that we just died rather than being delivered. It would have been better that we were wiped out in the wilderness. Maybe Pharaoh's army overran us. Why do we want to go in here and be sacrificed and have our families become slaves to them? Let's just go back and be slaves in Egypt again. You see, they forgot everything God had done. And, and, and it would have been easy to go back rather than go forward. Again, I ask, does that describe any of us here? Are there times that we forget all that God has done? You know, the Scripture is full of so many things God has done for us. The most amazing one is found in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. There it tells us, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and being without God in the world. Most of us here are Gentiles not of Jewish uh, birth. And because of that, we didn't even have the promise of the covenants. And what it says is we who were far from God, we who were separated from our sin, we who were headed to hell and had no hope, God left his throne in heaven and he came to earth. And he went to the cross to pay the penalty of death that we owe for our sins. And he delivered us from the power of sin and death. And many of us here have placed our faith and trust in the Lord. 
We've said, God, we know you paid that penalty of death for me. I accept that gift of grace. And because of that, we know when we die, when our life is over here on earth, we will go home to be with the Lord in heaven. We trust God for eternity, don't we? So why don't we trust God for today or tomorrow? We say, God, we know you took care of the biggest problem we'll ever face, but this problem I'm facing today is too big for you to handle. And what God reminds us us of here in this passage is that he can handle these things. And as we look at it, if you look at the first part of the book of Numbers, you see this, this grumbling against God. It's been a constant problem. It's not something that just started here. And finally, God says, you know, enough. He tells them what you said in, in chapter 14, verse 2, is going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you said you wanted to die in the wilderness, so you will. You, you said you were worried about your, your children becoming plunder. Well, guess what? They're the ones who are going to receive the promise. And, and only Joshua and Caleb, the two who did not forget God, would get to enter the land from this group. God said, the rest of you who are over uh, the age, you're all going to wander in the wilderness and die. None of you will get to cross over into the promised land. But your kids that you were worried about will come back and they will enter the land. Um, and, and the result we see begins. God says, these ten who spoke against me, they're struck with the plague. He says, for the rest of you, pack up your stuff and, and get in the wilderness. For every day, which was 40 days that you were in the land, you will wander one year. So for 40 years, they had to wander around the wilderness. And when you look at the amount of people that were over that age, it means about 100 men and women every single day for 40 years would be dropping dead in the wilderness. Imagine being Joshua and Caleb and seeing their friends, seeing these, these people that they loved and wanted to go into the land dying. Every day, every death was a reminder that when God says something, He means it. And these people are dying for 40 years. How would you like to be the last of that group? You know, everybody's looking at you going, you feeling okay? You're going to drop dead yet? We can't go into the land until you're gone, right? So eventually they all die. And they come back to the land. And I want you to turn over two books in your Bible to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 14. Uh, because here we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 14. It says in Joshua 14:6, Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal. Moses is gone. Joshua is now the leader of the people. And Caleb is the only other one from this generation left. And it says he drew near and Caleb the son of Jephthah the Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord my God fully. Isn't that a great statement? Wouldn't you love that to be on your tombstone? But I followed the Lord my God fully. Verse 9 says, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now, behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years, from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am 85 years old today. Caleb's a guy that for 40 days had walked through every part of the land. And so, essentially, what he's saying, it would be like God telling you, when you 
get to this point in your life, you can have a piece of property anywhere you've ever been in the United States. Anywhere. So if you're 85 and you get to pick out your piece of inheritance property, where's it going to be? Is it going to be a, a lake house with a bass boat? Is it going to be a, a hill country ranch where you get to go hunting? Is, is it going to be a garden home that's in a safe part of the city with nothing for you to maintain? Maybe a, a little cabin up in the mountains? If you got to pick any piece of property you wanted, the best in the entire land, where would you go? I want you to look at what piece of property Caleb picks out. It's in Joshua 14:11. Caleb says, I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength as it was then is so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great and fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me. And I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Whenever you see I am at the end of a word, em, like anakim, that's the plural S in Hebrew. And we, we saw in Numbers 13.22 that there were three sons of Anak that were there, these big giants. So what, what it's telling us is uh, they've multiplied. They've had over four decades to make more giants. So it's not just three of them. It's even more giants who are in the land. And there was a little bit of background found in Numbers 13.22. There it said, Now Hebron was built 70 years before Zone in Egypt. And what that little footnote means is they've had 400 years to be fortifying this place. So what Caleb does is he walks up to Joshua, the the general, and he says, "Do, Do you remember when we were here last time? Do you remember the place that made the people melt with fear? It's, it's that hilltop fortress. It's, it's that, that massive castle at the top with these super thick walls that they've been fortifying with guard towers for 400 years. It's, it's the place where the giants are. And he said, that's what I want. That's, that's my, my retirement piece of property right there. You know, as you think about this, remember Caleb, we were told, is 85 years old. This is a guy who wasn't content to sit back and say, let me tell you my old war stories. Let, let, me, let me tell you about back when I was fighting the battles. What he says is, God has still given me breath in my body. God's not done with me yet. Friends, just because you have a little snow on the roof, it doesn't mean the fire in the heart has to go out. Some of us have had a whiteout, you know, we're a little bit older. But it, it's not just the senior saints sometimes that are living... On, on, on the past. I, I see young people all the time doing this. I, I think there are going to be people whose tombstones or epitaphs are going to say, died at age 30, buried at 80. Are you somebody who's just coasting through life? Are you somebody who's just waiting for the Lord to return or take you home? Friends, if you still have breath in your body, God's not done with you. He has a purpose for you. And Caleb was one of those people who said, God is not done with me. And we see what God did with him in Joshua chapter 14, verse uh, 13. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Don't you love how that verse reads? Okay, Caleb, it's yours. Just go get it. (laughs) Go evict the people who were there first. It's yours. That's your inheritance. 
And with God's help, he does, because Joshua 14, 14 says, Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And then the land had rest from war. The word Kiriath means city of. Arba was the biggest, baddest warrior of the day. So it was called the city of Arba. And as Caleb comes in and he takes this guy out and his buddies and, and takes out the fortifications, he could have renamed the city Kiriath Caleb, the city of Caleb. But he calls it Hebron. And the word Hebron literally means communion. What he says is, that's where God met me. And that's where God met me in my time of greatest need. And he, he overcame the enemy. And as we come to a close today, I want you to, to think about what we've talked about today. And I want you to go on a spy mission. I want you to go in, in your mind and in your heart when you get home this afternoon on a, on a mission where you kind of think about your life and where God has taken you. Think about the places you've been and the, the battles and victories God has given you in the past. The ways he's helped you overcome some things that looked insurmountable. And then as you think in terms of, of that, think of the obstacles in your life right now. Identify the giants you're facing. And remember, you're not facing them alone. God is with you. Communion. God will be with you in it. He promised he will never leave you or forsake you. As a church, fellowship has a, a wonderful reminder just outside the doors of this sanctuary. You can, you can walk out the doors here and take a left and walk up to the new building addition that y'all sacrificed and built recently. That is an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance. It's a way that says, you as a congregation said, we're not content just to sit back and tell old war stories of the past. We've got new ground to take for the Lord. We've got things we can do in this community to be the hands and feet of Christ to reach out so that more and more people, men and women, boys and girls, can hear the good news of the gospel. That's, that's one of your Hebrons. That's one of the places God has met you through, through your willingness to sacrifice and, and stretch and say, God, we're not, we're not done yet. We're going to take more ground for you. That's a testimony of what God is doing in and through this church and his people. And I want you to think again of your own life and say, God, what do you want me to do? What are the giants you're facing in those times? Remember, there's a God-sized solution for every giant in your life. And as we end today, we're going to be coming to the communion table. A time that reminds us where God met us in our time of greatest need. We as men and women, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all owe a penalty of death. But God met us in our time of greatest need. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death we owe for our sins. And he wants you to have that gift of new life. He tells you in Romans 10.9 that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And what God says to us this morning is if you're here and you're far from God, if you have some sin in your life that has not been dealt with through the sacrifice of the cross, he's provided the way home. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
And he laid that cross down over that chasm of sin that separated us from him. And he said, if you'll place your faith and trust in his son, turning from your sins into Jesus as your savior, he's given you the bridge, the way to walk across that chasm of sin and to come home, to be made a part of the family of God. And that's what we're going to be remembering in a moment as we come to the communion table. How God met us in our moment of greatest need, provided the way home. And if we can trust him for all eternity, friends, we can trust him for what you're facing today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's commit to him the giants we're facing, the fears and struggles that we have, and ask him for his help. And then Pastor Grant will come and lead us in communion. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your word. And in it, the reminders of men and women of the past who had faith. Those who knew, Lord, that without you, they they could do nothing but with you. One plus you, God, is a majority. There's nothing we face in this life that you can't help us with. There's nothing in this world that you can't overcome. Jesus, you overcame sin and death. The grave could not hold you, but you rose from the dead. You showed that you were who you said you were. The Son of God who conquered and paid the penalty of sin and death. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's not yet received that gift of eternal life, that this would be the day where they turn to you and they say, God, thank you for your great gift of love and mercy and grace. And they become a son or a daughter, a part of the family of God through accepting your great gift of new life. Father, for the rest of us who have come to faith, who trust you for eternity, would you help us, Lord, with the struggles we face? They're real. They're hard things. But, Father, rather than magnifying the problem and minimizing you, would we magnify you, God, and minimize the problem, seeing it through your eyes? So we commit these things to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.